Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. Today I'm joined by Rachel and Rafael Rosado of the Matias Rosado Foundation. On this episode, Rafael and Rachel share about losing their 19-year-old son, Matias, to suicide in 2021, how the loss of Matias prompted them to start a foundation in his name, they talk about the night of Matias' suicide and the immediate aftermath that followed. We talk about the mission of the Matias Rosado Foundation, which is support, education, and advocacy around suicide prevention. And finally, we talk about treatment-resistant suicide and some of the misconceptions about it, as well as some of the currently available treatments for depression and some of their shortcomings. I really admire Rachel and Raphael and the work that they're doing in their foundation. You can check them out at MatiasRosadoFoundation.org, and that's spelled M-A-T-I-A-S-R-O-S-A-D-O, foundation.org. Just wanted to throw out there that we did have some minor audio issues while recording. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for transgender and gender non-binary folks. Dana is actually who I use as my business coach, and I would recommend her to anybody who's looking for some help jump-starting their business or just looking for some pointed tips on how to take their business to the next step. You can check them out at CC Resourcing. Dot us or check out the link in our show notes. Hey Rachel Raphael, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Rob. Hey, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, I'm honored to be able to speak with you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about your son, Matias, and the foundation that you started in his name. Before we get too deep into the conversation, there's a question that I like to start with. And understanding that it's been a little over a year and a half, I believe, since you lost Matias to suicide, I'm wondering if you could share with us what you would say are some of the most important things that you learned from Matias, either while he was here or specifically from losing him to suicide? I would say kindness. He was a very gentle soul and was kind throughout his life. Even when he was in his darkest hours, uh, he really... um, always had kindness in his heart. And that's something that I think is a is a really important feature throughout his life. Um, he had a lot of uh, a lot of other things, activities, and and really things that he liked. But he always did it with a certain amount of, um, I guess, kindness and and. Um, yeah, I, I think the word I would use is humility. Mm. That's the one I kind of learned most from him, even. When he was alive, he was uh, a great athlete. Matias was a 6'4", 190-pound, pure muscle kind of guy um, who played hockey. And he was the most humble hockey player there is. 
That being said, when he made a big hit or made a great goal, he just he chilled. He, he wasn't the kind of guy to showboat. He, he was humble. In his death, I think that same theme is carried over. Humility in the sense that we are meeting so many incredible people um, going through similar things who have suffered the same type of loss. And it's humbling to see how they have survived. And I think that's the word you're going to hear a little bit about today. Survived the death of a loved one. So he taught me how to try to stay humble mm -hmm. uh, in life. And he had a lot of reasons not to be humble. Yeah. Uh, and yet he was. So. Yeah. I mean, he was quite accomplished. You know, we always say we lost him in the prime of his life. And he was going to do so many great things. But we can't forget he had already accomplished <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, and in, you know, in 19 and a half years, you know, he had done a lot of things that most of us um, may not even get to do and experience, you know, great team um, efforts in his sports and, and really success in his academics. Um, and he got into the, his top college at Chapel Hill and, um, you know, I think was very, had a lot of really great, um, you know, successes a lot already in his life. And unfortunately, we weren't able to get to see all the other things he was going to do. Mm, very well said. Sounds like a very accomplished young man. And I never played hockey. I don't think I was tough enough to play <laughs> hockey, but I know that's a tough sport. And to hear that he excelled at it, I think kind of speaks volumes to the type of person and the type of man that he was. Um, I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about the months, the years, the time leading up to losing Matias to suicide. I know he was a, a freshman in college, just finished his freshman year. Um, what what was that time like for him and what was that time like for, for you both? I mean, that time in particular um, was, was COVID year um, leading up into college um you know there there were some definitely some times in high school he was starting to to struggle and and have the social anxiety um it may be the inklings of depression i don't know if he realized or recognized that maybe that was um you know part of it but it certainly was manifesting it, itself in anxiety and in social anxiety and he had had a couple panic attacks um and i think it definitely um, you know, escalated during the COVID year when he was sent, you know, they were not, not able to stay at Chapel Hill. They were sent home after two weeks uh, after being on campus. Um, and I think he started really struggling and, and depression really got its hold on him at that point. Um, he was home doing online school. Uh, a lot of his friends were still at their colleges uh, so I think it was really when a, a time that we start started seeing it taking hold in the classic sense of the symptoms uh, that you'll see not sleeping well, not eating and and not and showing less and less um, ability to to find um, joy in in the normal things that you you typically do. So it's it's in my mind, depression is a very insidious disease. It starts off slowly and it just grows throughout 
I think Matias's journey, and it's hard for young men, especially in the sense that you, and a teenager, what's what's a normal, quiet, reserved, shy teenager versus a teenager that's suffering from depression or starting to show signs of depression? And as a parent, I thought it was very difficult for me in hindsight, you know, should I have seen more? Could I have done more at that point? Because I, I, I personally think he started off pretty much in the transition to high school three, four years ago before he passed. And it kind of grew. It grew from a little bit of the anxiety to, am I doing well enough in school? Rachel mentioned the panic attack. One of his first panic attacks was related to schoolwork. And he got into a really great program here at the school, very prestigious program. And within a month of doing that, he had a panic attack, thinking he couldn't handle that type of work. When we told the school teachers, we were explaining what we wanted to withdraw him. And they were all, he he has straight A's. I don't understand where's that coming from. He's doing the work, but he just couldn't allow himself to see that. He felt like he was failing. And he said, I'm failing out of this program. And that is one of the first things that it it distorts your reality. Um, that was not the case. He was getting all A's. He So that is you know, that's when you see kind of see this distortion happening. And I think that's a big part of depression is that your what you're seeing is not what everyone else is seeing. And and Raph and I were kind of talking about that recently is that, you know, we are all seeing like the color blue. They're seeing the color, you know, right. black, black. You, you know, and they're like, it's black. And we're like, no, no, it's blue. It's all blue. This is what you got to do. You just have to look a little harder. It's going to, it's blue. And, it, you know, eventually they're like, okay, it's blue, you know? So I think that's part of like trying to understand um, yeah. when it sets in and what's happening and kind of how they're feeling and, and all that put together is, you know, something that we, we think about a lot. Yeah. So, so going back to your original question for us, it was more of a, it, it was a, it was a years long progression for Matias from the panic to the anxiety to self-harm. He did show signs of self-harm towards the last stages of his of his disease um, to a first suicide attempt that failed. Thank God um, that, you know, saved him to trying again after that and us stopping it to the day he unfortunately succeeded in, in taking his life. So we, we saw it progressing. We saw all types of helps, and I'm sure we'll get into the different types of helps and treatments that we, we were able to get with him. But it was a slow ongoing process or, or disease that progressed and that we knew and we were trying to help him throughout mm-hmm. the, the the entire time yeah which i feel grateful wow. yeah i feel grateful that we we did know and we were able to try to help absolutely thank you for sharing that with me i, I can't imagine what it must feel like to be a parent and know that your child is struggling and feel like you're doing everything you can to help them and for whatever reason, it not seeming like the right type of help is out there. I have dealt with depression from the time I was a child, uh, really heavy throughout my 20s. And the way I've described it, which you just described it the same way in different words, is I've always described it like a warm blanket. You know, Mm -hmm. you cover up with it right before you go to bed and it feels kind of nice. It's different, it's comfortable, and then you wake up at some point in the middle of the night and you're completely stifled by the heat of this blanket and you can't get it off and you're sweating and you're uncomfortable and you feel trapped. 
And that, that's been my experience every time I've gone through a depressive episode is that inevitable point of feeling completely engulfed by this thing. And it's a scary experience when it's happening because, I mean, the first time I went through it, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't have the language to say, hey, I'm feeling depressed and I need help. And when you're in that moment, it feels like you're dying. It feels like your life is ending. That is a really good point. And I think I think especially for the younger teens and young adults that are first experiencing, you know, um, one of our Fonda Bryant is one of our speakers um, that we've come across and met and she um, just described it as it starts as a physical manifestation. You're, you get these physical signs, you just don't know what's happening. And then it's, and then it's kind of growing and you're, and you're still struggling to figure out is what is going on? Am I sick? And what's, and what's happening? And I think in, in the younger ages, they just don't figure it out for a while and or it's masked within the angst of of their lives that they're going through in high school and and those types of things. So I think it's a really good point is to say it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. If you don't mind me, Rob, can I, can I ask you a question? How do you get yourself out of or how how's that that journey of getting out of depressive moments or depressive episodes for you? Because I, I I struggled with seeing that with Matthias and being able to recognize it as someone who cares mm. about someone who's a, who's a depressive, how do you, how does it manifest for you, for example? Yeah, thank, thank you for asking. I, I've always felt when I'm, when I'm dealing with a depressive episode, it's kind of like fighting a riptide at the beach. The more I fight against it, the more I suffer with it. It is like you, you use the perfect word. It's insidious in that way where the harder I try, the more I feel in touch with how impactful and hard it is. Um, there have been times that I've been in depressive episodes for a full year. Um, I mean, a year straight of every day being in what feels like crippling depression. Um, so for me, it's it's been number one, the acceptance of this is just where I am right now. And I have to allow myself to go through this feeling. So that's step one is accepting that it's there and there may be nothing I can do in my power to change it. And then number two, which sounds contradictory, I have to do everything in my power to try to change it. With depression, I think we really want there to be a big green button we can press that's going to change that state. That's not been my experience. It's not one thing that's changed the way. It's a thousand little things. And I don't know which of those things are going to help me shift it. So I have to do them all. You know, it took, you know, I think the antidote for my depression, which wants me to be isolated and alone and disconnected. I have to push against that. I have to go connect with people. I have to call friends and family. I have to get closer to my support network. It wants me to lay around all day and not do anything. I have to get up. I have to get outside. I have to do the things that I love to do, even if they don't feel good in the moment. I've had to do, you know, things to work on my spiritual condition at the time, like prayer and meditation. I've had to, and you, you spoke about, it was like this for Matthias, like not eating well or not being hungry. I have to push through that. I have to try to nourish my body and eat well. I have to try to sleep normally, even if I'm suffering from insomnia. So it's a lot of acceptance, but also resistance at the same time, which those two things don't seem to go well together, but that's that's what it's been like for me in the past when that's shown up. 
Thank you for sharing. It's, it's a sounds like an incredible journey on your part, and it's I, I don't never want to think about other presses being weak or, or in any way, shape, or form that way. But the strength you're demonstrating in terms of being able to a recognize and do it, the depressives that are that you may not see, and I hate when people think about it. It's not a weakness that they have. It's it's a strength we will never recognize because just yes. just getting out of bed, just just. Matthias, towards the end of his life, was, in his words, going to bed, crying, waking up, crying, and just being able to put on that show. Wow, the amount of strength it took him to do that it takes you to push. It, it's people just don't recognize how, how incredible that really is. It it is incredible, and yeah, I mean, when when you're in that state. It's, it's important to be graceful with yourself because there were some days where the only thing I did was get out of bed and that had to be the victory for the day. Mm -hmm. And it, I think I relate a lot to the way you describe Matthias, which is something I wanted to get into a little bit. Uh, my, my dad is someone that dealt with lifelong depression and I don't think really even knew that's what it was. He never sought out help for it. He never talked about it with us, but now in hindsight, we can absolutely see that's what was going on and the one thing i do have is a letter that my dad wrote to us about nine months before he died it was a, a letter pretty much a letter of admission about his alcoholism and he wanted to share that with us and it was maybe the only time in my life that my dad shared his emotions with us it was not something he knew how to do and what he said in this letter and what i want to ask you about was he talked about how no matter what he did in his own life, it was never good enough for him. He said it could be good enough for everyone else around him. They could be giving him praise and recognition, but he set the bar up here to a place that he could never achieve it, even if he tried his hardest. And it sounds like Matthias also set the bar very high. Is that something you'd agree with? And I'm wondering what that was like for him. 110% in agreement. He was never good enough in his mind for like rachel mentioned before summa cum laude from high school um wasn't enough getting into unc chapel hill wasn't enough getting into every other school with scholarships left and right wasn't enough um when you started group therapies and talking to people about their depression everyone in the group had something smart to say and intelligent except matthias mm -hmm. matthias could not add value everyone could get better except Matthias in his mind. And this is his own words as well. He, had, he, he was fortunate enough to, to find someone he cared about at the end of his life and shared a lot of time with her. And she also suffered from depression. And he would tell her all the time, you, you can get better. I can. You can get better, but I can. Everyone was better than him. And he, he always thought his friends were having pity on him for asking him out. Oh, they didn't, you know, they don't want me here. They're just doing it out of pity. You know, just trying to be nice. And it was 110% yeah. different. Everyone wanted to be with him. Everyone wanted, everyone wanted to be him. I mean, yeah. I look at my own son and I was jealous of how freaking handsome and intelligent and athletic. That's my the God, thing. to Every, be you. Everyone oh. wanted to, to be around him and, yeah. you know, wanted to be him. Except himself, you know, yeah, except, except himself. himself. Yeah, man. Good point. And he just had a lot to offer. And I think people wanted to hear what he had to say, you know, and 
And it's kind of funny because we would watch Jeopardy every night. And if there was a final Jeopardy that he did not get, it was an it was an anomaly. I mean, he would say he'd just be sitting there, you don't even think he's listening. He would say the answer, and you're like, that is not the that's wrong. Country that's no longer in existence from 1978. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. It's just like and again, and tumbled. he would just sit there, yeah. yeah and it would and it would come up, and he he wouldn't Keep even eating. say anything. He would be like, "See, told you, told you." Yeah. He'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, it's such and such." More. Yeah. Next. So. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's that is a symptom from a lot of the press is just the feeling of of self of worthlessness. Yes. That they have for themselves, um, you know, coupled with hopelessness, but that's a different topic. And but, a skewed view of reality. Very much so. Yeah, that's that's making me feel very in touch with the sadness that I feel uh, in, in this moment for people who have to go through that. It sounds like on the surface and to everyone around Matias, he's this incredible, handsome, talented, smart, gifted guy. And literally everyone could see that except himself. And that yeah. that is really uh, that is really sad. Um, and I think it speaks to, again, this is like the word of the day, I think the insidious nature of this disease, where it prevents us from seeing things at face value, seeing things for the way they actually are. And Raphael, you mentioned hopelessness being another kind of key component that someone deals with when they're in this depressive state. And it sounds like Matthias communicated that, you know, saying everyone else can get better. I can't get better. This is never going to change. Yep. Is that something he shared pretty openly? Is that something you you knew he was dealing with at the time? I, you know, I don't know if he shared it as much one on one openly. We we got a lot of this through reading his journal after the fact. We got a lot of this through the group sessions that he got. We would talk every once in a while, but Matthias unfortunately wasn't in my mind. And maybe he was and maybe to be frank, this is another topic of discussion, which is the difference between a father and son relationship and a mother and son relationship. I think he spoke more to Rachel than me, and I think she had a much more, you know, I, I don't want to beat myself up, more em empathetic approach, which yeah, I, I wish I could have done that a little bit differently. But yeah, I, I don't think he shared it as much with me. Maybe he shared it a lot more with you, Ray. Yeah, um, I was definitely kind of his person, and I still feel a little, um, um like a, there's a smidge of me that's a little mad at him that he he knew that he was leaving me as his person, and he. He knew that I was definitely going to be hurt, and he thought we would be okay without him. And he said that he told us that just go on without me, you'll be fine, which makes me a smidge mad. So I do have a little bit of that. But the first time I heard the word hopelessness, he was sitting at the kitchen table, and we were talking about his girlfriend that he had met and his first love. And I said, Oh, you know, she seems so great. Um, she's been over, you know, really like her. I just, I love spending time with her and seeing you guys together. You know, I'm just curious, you know, why is she, um, they met in um, outpatient group therapy. And I said, oh, I was just curious, you know, what is, you know, what what's she working on? And I was trying to not be, you know, I was trying to be casual. And he looked at me and said, deadpan hopelessness and it's it was almost like I got slapped across the face because I've never I never heard that word until then and I felt like that is exactly what he 
was dealing with it. He was telling me it was for himself. And that was the word that I've never. Yeah. No, it's I, interesting because it's not, it, it isn't, it isn't, it wasn't depression. It wasn't sad. It's, it's almost like the hopelessness is in fact a disease. Yeah. The on, hope, its, on its own. The way he said it to me hopelessness. was beyond depression. It was something that like, the way yeah. he said it, it was literally slapping me across the face. And I was like, oh my gosh. And that's mm. when. And we just really, it's a word I, yeah, even now like, I can't understand how hard. If you hard hear that, that word, is. run. <laughs> if, yeah. if your child says that word. Yeah. And uses it. Powerful. It's, it's a, a tough, it's a tough word yeah. and it means a lot. It means that there's a. Yeah, it's it, that was so that was the big one in terms of the hopelessness side of it. And how do you combat that? How do you how do you show someone who isn't rationally thinking that there's value? How do you as a parent, as a caregiver, someone who loves the person who's depressed? It really cuts short what we can do once you hear that there. It, there isn't a pill. Yeah. There isn't that green button that you mentioned earlier. There's, there's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think I just tried to show him. Yeah. And even when he was, before we kind of knew we were struggling, I was always showing that there's goodness and, and, and beautifulness. And I maybe overdid the positive in life. And I just wanted, you know, to raise two boys that were great citizens and show them that there's so much to offer and and um, be a part of in this life and i did it i did it till the end <laughs> and i still do i think yeah thank you thank you for sharing that and yeah there's a lot to touch on there i, I think first rachel i want to talk on or touch on something you mentioned which is the you called it the smidge of anger that you feel toward matthias and I just want to normalize that feeling. Um, anger is something that I think all of us feel after losing a loved one to suicide. And it is a completely normal feeling that I found I have to hold space for uh, toward my dad. And it's, you know, in five and a half years, that feeling has changed a lot. There are some members of my family that are still angry with my dad. And that's the primary emotion that they feel toward him. And I, I can't fault them for that. How could we not be angry that someone made the decision to remove themselves from our lives. The one thing I believe to be true, and you said this a little bit about Matthias, is he said, you'll, you'll be fine without me. I would take that a step further. And I, I think he probably believed you'd be better off without him, yeah. which just speaks to the true delusion that someone is feeling when they're in that depressive state. And you know, about the feeling of hopelessness, the thing about that, and I think you kind of asked Raphael, like, how do you, how do you combat that? I don't know. I know there are tools out there. Um, there are some really great therapy tools that are ever evolving, like cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavior therapy, which work on just that thing, which is you have this thought that completely encompasses your mind. How do you work around that hijack system? And it's something that takes time. Again, there's not that green button. But the thing about hopelessness is there are moments where that goes away. You know, you go from feeling completely hopeless to maybe going through a period of time where you feel pretty good and you believe that you can get better. But then as soon as that feeling comes back, it's like it never left. 
It's like it convinces you that it's been there your whole life and it will be there for the rest of it. And that's a really scary feeling to have to believe that that, that that's not going to go away. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about something. I, I think when we lose a loved one to suicide, we, we kind of get a superpower. And I think what that superpower is, is hindsight. We have the ability to learn all of these things about our loved one, even after they're no longer here. And we're able to use that in a way that changes the way that we interact with and love the other people in our lives. And, you know, I always say this, I, I, I feel a lot of similarities with speaking with other survivors of suicide loss, but I have no idea what it's like to be a parent and lose my 19 year old son to suicide. I know what it's like to be a 26 year old man who lost his dad. Um, your experience is so incredibly different than my own. And I'm wondering what you as a mother and you as a father, Raphael, have taken away from losing Matias to suicide that has either changed the way that you view your role as a mother and father or on top of that, what what message would you have for mothers and fathers out there with this new hindsight and the new lessons that you've learned? I I actually don't try to go back and try to rewrite things because um, it's I think at the beginning we we figured out that if it wasn't going to be that day, it was going to be another day, and yeah. uh, so we could. We could not rewrite um, that per se. Um, so that's something that we don't really dwell on too much um, is looking back. Um, and I think that's been helpful um, to kind of just look forward and one foot at a time in front of the other foot um, and just trying to get through, um, I think, the, the beginning stages of loss. As a, as a father, losing a child is hard. Well, it's an understatement. It's the when worst you, thing you'll go through in your whole when entire you, life. When you think about, when I think about, my primary role as a parent is to protect my family. As a father, I have one job, and that's protect my family. And I failed. And that's the feeling that I have to combat. The mm -hmm. sense of failure, the sense of not being there for my son and able to help him. And it's more than losing. I think this is, it's more than losing a child. When you lose a child to suicide, that child chose, and I, I use that word falsely. I, don't, I still don't believe it's much of a choice, but that child took his or her own life, despite all the love that you have for them, despite everything you thought you could do for them. So yeah, there, there is, there's guilt. And part of my, you know, path forward is, is dealing with that guilt and trying to overcome that guilt. And as Rachel said, understanding that we did everything we humanly can um, to help them. We loved them. We raise our kids extremely well in hindsight. 
yeah. would never leave the handle them. We we travel for hockey in the south. <laughs> You're traveling with these kids every weekend, and both of our boys play. So there were weekends where Rachel would go with Matias to Boston. I go with Mason to Florida. We would not see each other for weekends for months on end. So no, I don't go back saying, God, I wish I would have done X, Y. I do go back saying I wish I could have talked to him. There's some things I wish I would have said to him more. And in my therapy, I, I recognize that even if I had said that, it wouldn't have saved them. But I still would have wished I dealt with them a little more empathetically. I wish I would have been able to just do a couple things more. Now, your, your second part of your question is going forward. And we are blessed to have two kids. We'll always have two kids, Matthias and his brother Mason. And it's hard for me not to overcompensate with the survivor, not to treat Mason with kick gloves having had Matias's experience and not hold on to him too tight. You know, so there are things that, yeah, we, uh, yeah. Do I use the phrase, I love you a hell of a lot more with Mason than I did with Matias? Yeah. Do I reach out to him? Yeah. Do I take up more teenage attitude from him than I would like? Yeah. Um, so we do learn how to be more empathetic in my mind. For me, that has been something that's been more helpful is how to see others and have more empathy to what they're going through. Um, I, I think, I think another thing that we both agree on is that we were present and we did, we did everything right. And Matias did everything right. And it still didn't work out for us, but it was, you know, it's a disease that it just can affect, um, you know, anyone at any time. Um, so I feel like, you know, we feel like we got we you know drew the unlucky straw to some extent I don't I don't go back and I, I don't wish we spent more time and did did more things as a family I feel very lucky yeah. that we had everything we had and I was uh, probably one of the luckiest people for 19 and a half years of having of having our intact family yeah. and I think you know Raph and I um have had a great marriage and I think Losing him has been really tough, but he's the only other person who I grew that loved Matias as much as I did. And we find that we get a lot of comfort from each other um, dealing with this loss. And I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I I love your take on it, which is coming to a place of acceptance that we did all that we could. This is something that was bound to happen at one time or another. And to not beat yourself up and be able to appreciate the relationship that you had with Matias. I think the takeaway that I have in losing my dad is kind of similar to yours, Raphael. Is like there were some things I never said to him because I didn't know I could say them to him. I never told my dad like, Hey man, I'm really proud of you. I never told him that Yeah, I was, he was, he was a badass dude who worked to the bone for his family. And I never got to say like, Hey man, thank you. I'm proud yeah. of you. So that's something that I've taken as a lesson learned. I thank the people in my life for showing up for me and express gratitude and appreciation and connect on an emotional level, which is an uphill battle for us as men, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, I've had to try to break those walls down and I, I do, uh, I do want to spend some time talking about the 
purpose that you've derived from losing Matthias, which is you've started a foundation in his name before, before we do shift and go there, I do want to give you an opportunity. Mm -hmm. If there's anything else that you feel compelled to share in this moment about the actual experience of losing Matthias to suicide or the immediate aftermath, you know, there's so much that goes on in that tiny window of time from the event of losing them to the funeral to the the immediate grieving to the whole thing and if there's anything you'd like to share about that time i want to give you the opportunity yeah um it was a um it was a saturday um night and the, the friday that friday before was a beautiful day with him um and we were spending it with him and his girlfriend. Uh, we went out to dinner and, and um, had some laughs and they went off and watched a movie. And um, that Friday was really a really special day. Um, the Saturday that we lost him, his girlfriend had gone on vacation. His brother was away uh, with his girlfriend on vacation. And uh, I kind of I was thinking, we, I think we both were thinking it was a high uh, risk day. Uh, but we felt like things were really, you know, kind of going well. Um, and he um, said around five, five like five o'clock or so, he was going to go out and door dash, which he did, um, you know, randomly here and there. Um, we did have like 360 on him. He, um, since his, he had an attempt uh, three months prior and um, since then he felt like we didn't trust him because we were checking things and, and, um, he was right. Um, so he did not like that part of it. Um, and we had gone out to dinner with friends. Um, first time in three months right. that we had gotten off and not have one of us with him. Yeah. Um, and we, um, we got back from dinner and I, and his location was kind of going off and on. I was kind of in touch with him and saying, when are you coming home? He's like, I just got dinner. I'm gonna... So he was kind of like on and off with us. And um, we got home and uh, he wasn't kind of answering my texts back. And I went into his room and I just, uh, it was kind of picked up and it looked off to something looked off to me. And I, I started to panic and I, uh, I said, I hadn't gotten in touch with him in about 40 minutes and I um went to his iPad because I knew I could do his find my phone he had put his phone on airplane mode but I knew how it was hooked up and I found his location um and we drove um it was hard because we were trying to figure out it, you know it just gave us a ping and we were trying to figure out the map it was a little bit of a panic mode um, and we drove um, out to South Carolina about 20 minutes and um, his his uh, attempt was also in that same area um, on a cul-de-sac that was going to be built being built. So it was kind of like a road that had no uh, houses or anything. Um, so something similar. And we were getting towards an area that that seemed similar. And I was starting to get more panicked. And um, we came up. Uh, upon uh, a car and um, the trunk was open and Ralph's like, it's not him. It's not him. And then we got closer and it was his car. 
Um, yeah, no, so we, and so we, we found them. And, um, we, we, we found, we came upon, um, and we found them. So that's also, you know, there's, I think, a lot of parents that do um, find their child. Um, and it's a very traumatic uh, experience. And that's something you have to deal with on top of the grief. So it's definitely PTSD and all these other things. But um, I am so glad that we found him because I'm supposed to do everything. Like I have brought him in. He was born on a Saturday. And he left us on a Saturday. And I was there. And I, and I even though it was very difficult, I feel like I was supposed to be there and I was supposed to find him and some stranger wasn't supposed to find him and tell us. So I feel like I was, that even though it was very hard, it was supposed to happen that way. <laughs> In terms of, of the aftermath of it, I mean, the, the, the shock, there's just no words to describe the shock, the despair, um, the pain that comes when you first hear or see a loved one have passed away. And to think that we would survive something like that, I mean, there, to be perfectly honest, I mean, you, as a parent, you, you part of your wishes, you went with them. Um, and being able to overcome that with the uh, help of friends, throughout that the first week was was hard um the first week of so how we're gonna, what we're going to do what we're not going to do and having people there trying to help maybe not helping some of them are um well the thing was mason was away so we actually were were up all night and um caught a plane that next morning three hours later and caught a plane to michigan um to tell mason in person and something that we felt like we needed to do. Um, so we didn't tell anyone until after we had spoken with Mason. Um, so that we flew, you know, it was difficult to be in an airport or to be, you know, just out in public um, within 12 hours of, you know, finding Matias. So it was autopilot. And just having a purpose and, and a goal to get to our other son and to make sure that he was going to take this news in the way that we wanted him to. Um, so we felt like that was really important. Um, and, you know, family and friends held us up and, um, and got us through the darkest of days. And again, it's still like autopilot. I think that takes over. I think shock takes over. I think your body just kind of fends for itself somehow. Yeah. But in in a way, I think having that purpose of getting to Mason was was good for us. Because the alternative was just staying on the floor crying. And, and so having that helped. And I think that kind of led us to another thing. It's having the family there led us to what was Matias's legacy going to be? What was what are we going to do to make up for the loss of him? Because he would have made an impact on this this earth. He would have made an impact with other people. And from there, that first week was 
where our foundation and the idea for the foundation came out of was having friends and family there and us thinking they all wanted to do something. So what are we going to do? And that was the genesis of, of starting off the Matias Rosado Foundation. And kind of keeping the purpose going, you know, that first day of getting to Mason and having that purpose, I feel like coming coming to this decision of, of making a foundation and trying to help others um, kind of drives us and keeps us a little focused. Um, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to, you know, get out of bed. It, it, you actually kind of turn into what they were going through as a, as a person going through deep traumatic grief, you get out of bed if you can. And you're like, I did that. And quite frankly, I don't care if I do anything else. I did that. Um, so you, so I was feeling a lot like, gosh, I know what he's, he was going through. I could barely like function. Um, so that kind of, you know, plays a, plays a role. I just want to say I, I love what you just said. I was never good at physics. That's not a class I was good at. But what I do know is that energy doesn't disappear, right? It's something that is transferred. It's something that forever exists. And I believe that when someone dies or when someone dies by suicide, the feelings that they were going through, I think they're transferred onto us. And I just love the way you describe that, Rachel, because that was my experience as well, is I felt like I was right on the front lines where my dad was leading up to his death. And I just want to express my gratitude and appreciation for you uh, sharing that time with me. I know it can't be easy to talk about. And I've met with other folks who have been the ones to find their loved one after a suicide. And anytime I hear about that, my heart just feels so heavy. Um, and I don't understand what that feels like. It was my mom and sister who found my dad and I wasn't there. And I feel so much guilt about not being there. And I feel a lot of guilt that they had to find them. But when I speak with others who have found their loved one, they express exactly what you just did, which is I feel so grateful that it was me to be able to find them. Um, and that just, exhibits such tremendous strength and fortitude. And I just want you to know that you're absolutely heard and seen and you're not alone in having that experience. And I, I appreciate you sharing it with me today. I, I read a quote this morning that I feel like is pertinent to where I'd like to go next. And it says, where a man's wound is, that is where his genius will be. And it was Robert Bly that said that. And it says man, but I think it applies to anybody. And I just want to read it again, and I'm going to substitute it with the word person. Where a person's wound is, that is where their genius will be. Um, and to me, it sounds like that's the exact case for the two of you in starting the Matias Rosado Foundation. You took this wound that you had in losing him and found tremendous purpose in it to be able to create and extend his legacy and use it in a way to help other people. So I'm wondering if you could tell me about, so you mentioned it was in that first week that the genesis of this idea came to be. What is it exactly that you look to do with the foundation? What would you say is the mission and vision? And give me just a little bit about the, the kind of current state of, of things with the foundation. Yeah, so we were, we were on our porch talking to friends and family and there's a, there was a sunny day and we 
always talking about what to do about it and people are like wanting to do things. And it was important for us to get things going quickly in a way. A, it kept us busy. It kept us focused on on moving his legacy forward. But B, we had he had so many friends wanting to do something. And I just felt it would be too impersonal to just even donate to X, donate to Y, do this, do that. I wanted to try to keep his name, for lack of a better word, relevant, important moving forward. So we thought about Sustainable Foundation, um, where we can share the story, share Matias' story, share his legacy, if you will, with others about depression, about suicide, about anxiety, about panic. And that was where we came up and we just talked about naming the Matias Rosado Foundation. The mission statement is, is relatively straightforward. We're, we just want to support, educate, and advocate on behalf of individuals that are suffering through depression and help in terms of suicide prevention. Um, and we've, you know, over the last year and a half, we've had a couple of good events in terms of people showing up to, to donate to that cause. And we make connections with other organizations locally. There's a good organization by the name of Mission 34 that we've we've met here and they go out and sponsor uh, education programs in schools and colleges and let people talk about depression at a young level, which is something which while the stigma is getting slowly removed, there's still a level of stigma, letting people know that it's okay to not be okay as a mission. So we wanna support organizations like that. You know, we, we started uh, working with the Steve Smith Foundation here and they've set up a uh, behavioral health care urge Behavioral Health Urgent Care Centers is their business model where we have a place 24-7, 365 days of the year where you can bring people suffering from depression episodes or bring, yourself. or bring yourself and have experts deal with you instead of having to have to go to a hospital emergency room, which may not be the best environment for individuals, but is the best that we have at that time. So finding organizations that we can work with, that we can help sponsor, making the awareness out there advocating on behalf of more treatment, more more resources. When Matias was at his depth of, of despair, I remember in a 24-hour period making 22 different calls to individuals, trying to find a therapist. None of them were taking new patients. Trying to find a psychiatrist. None of them were taking new patients. We end up with a assistant psychiatrist or somebody who isn't really there because that's the only people we can. And they're doing the best they can. I know I don't I don't complain about the help Matias got. I don't think it was second rate at all, but it has to be a hell of a lot easier to find resources for individuals than what it currently is. And I think using Matias' story will help show how important it is to get there. Um, and that's part of what, in my mind, what I wanted to do with the foundation and, and what the people around us kind of rallied around as well. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I think, um, you know, just continuing his legacy, and I think he embodied um, helping others, mm -hmm. um, along the way. And I think, you know, you feel like, you know, maybe that is his purpose is to really, hopefully we can help, you know, just one person. And quite frankly, he already helped <laughs> one person and his girlfriend. And she, she, say, she said, she said he saved her life. So, uh, and if that's something that I'll forever, be thankful for Matias for um the other thing is you know humble Matias probably wouldn't like this foundation named after him or have a foundation and you know what it helps my little anger a little yeah joke and and laugh make it about him um it's it's interesting 
for me, I, I never like to hear the phrase, and I have struggled with the phrase, well, maybe something good can come out of Matias's death. Um, yeah. I don't like thinking about anything good coming out of his death in a way. You know, it's, it's, it, I don't, it's not ironic. It's just no good comes out of my child's death. But let's do the best we can right. and try to help others not have to go yeah. through the pain that we have gone through and try to help others that are suffering from the pain of Matias live through. And I think if anyone can just anyone struggling can just see how they affect the people they leave behind and if that helps them at all, just hold on and and keep trying mm -hmm. is something that we wish we could tell Matias now. Like yeah. you don't know how bad it is. It truly is not to have you here. I wish I could have told him the truth, which is no matter how much of a burden he thought he was in life, he's a hell of a lot worse of a burden in death. Mm. Because there isn't, I mean, right now I'm at the stage, I've only been 19 months removed or whatever, a year and a half removed. I'm at the stage of going maybe two or three hours in a day without thinking of Matias. There isn't, I'm not, there's no such thing as the day I do not think about Matias. It's a matter of, it went from thinking about him every few minutes so now I can go a few hours without the thought coming in. And the foundation is, as Rachel mentioned, for better or for worse, because you're dealing with the foundation that reminds you about your son and his death and his pain. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a labor of love, yeah. a very painful one, that we hope makes a difference. And yeah, and sometimes we're like, you know, we should do more. We should have more. Yeah, and I'm like, you know what? No we're energy. doing the best we can, and that's okay. Right. And, and and giving yourself grace, even dealing with someone that is alive and dealing with this, and someone, if you, if you happen to lose someone, giving yourself grace as you're trying to help someone is really important. And just to keep that in mind is, you know, you have to give yourself a break. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say I really admire and appreciate the work that you're doing. And, and I'm a firm believer when we're driven by passion and purpose and direction, I think there's no limit to what we can accomplish. And I definitely hear the passion that you're bringing to this foundation and to this project. And it is important that we have people like yourselves who are so close to the issue that we're working on, you know, because they're I think people can start a foundation without having the understanding that you have and that I have. And I think it's amazing that you're able to take that and apply it and use it as a way to, like I said earlier, extend Matias's legacy and also try to help people who are going through similar things. And, and you mentioned Mission 34. I'm actually meeting with uh, Heather Bonner next week. Um, <laughs> awesome. So that's, that's pretty neat. Um, awesome, and, yeah. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, for those who are listening and for myself, how how can we support you? How can we support the foundation? How can we get involved? Um, I'm definitely going to include a link to the website in the show notes. So for anyone who's curious, you can go check out the foundation. There's a, a page on there about Matias. You can watch a short video about him and read more about him, which I think is really cool. Um, but in terms of getting involved and supporting, what are some things we could do? I think you hit on a couple of things which are great. Get involved with your local organizations, I think. For example, you mentioned there's, there's a lot of grassroots organizations. Mission 34, which suffers a similar loss to us, 
donate to them, go to their events, speak about it. I mean, to me, you know, yes, we raise money for other individuals, but it's more about having the conversation. So when we have our events, it's about getting right people out there to share their stories. And then last, we did a golf outing a few months back, which went really well. And it was about, and we took other individuals in the area who lost their lives to suicide and we honored them and their families there. Speak their names. Don't be ashamed to speak, you know, Sean Bonner's name in the case of Heather, Mission 34, Matias Rosado, you know, in ours, your father's name. Speak their names, share their stories and have conversations. Parents, talk to your kids about depression. It's not a taboo word in terms of suicide. It's not, there's a lot of studies using the word suicide isn't going to implant the suicidal thought in somebody's head as much as they already have it there. And you just need to have that discussion. That would be, you know, things like that. In terms of materials, yeah, go onto the website, support our local events. We we support others as well. And um, speak their yeah, names. Yeah. And, and, and we do, I mean, I'd like to do more with educational information yeah. on the website, but I do, we do post, um, you know, some, I think articles that we feel are, are relevant to our situation. Um, and if there's, uh, you know, people that feel like treatment resistant depression is um, something that they are dealing yeah. with or their loved one is dealing with, um, you know, we're happy to, we're, we're, I think that's probably one of our goals. I mean, as we kind of get deeper into what we're really kind of focusing right now, we're doing a lot of fundraising and, and really thinking about where we're going to do everything. But, you know, treatment resistant, um, the the avenues um, that, you know, that people can take. And I, I think that's something that we found um, really that we struggled against is just trying to find any relief uh, for him. Um, and we were about to start a new treatment for him that Monday, um, two days after he passed. Um, so that that was hard. Um, and I and I think that's probably one of our one of our focuses. And we we would love to hear from people if they have, um, uh, you know, would like to share information uh, or, or or anything to post uh, in in regard to that in particular. But so so Rob, you, I don't know if you. Have you dealt much with treatment resistant depression in terms of what that is? And because there are different styles of depression, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were times where I would say the depression that I was facing in the moment was resistant to the treatments that I was going through, where none of the medications I was trying seemed to be working. The therapies didn't seem to be helping. Um, and, you know, luckily, whether it was the depression itself, shifting or finding the treatment that was able to help it shift. I don't know. It's a little bit of a, a chicken and an egg, but I would say my experience has not been treatment resistant. So I'm definitely curious to hear your take on that and understanding that is what Matthias dealt with. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because I think there are two ways to look at it and maybe they're both true. Is this, is this a symptom of the lack of available treatment that we have that could help? Or is it the nature of the depression itself or both? I, I think it's also the nature of even the drugs that they, you know, you have, you can, the cocktail that it takes a certain amount of time to try something out, add a couple more milligrams, no, then add this to it. And the, the, the length of time it takes to try to even find something that is going to 
have any relief for him. He didn't find any relief in a, in a variety of, of those. And then on top of that, you know, you're, you know, the, the, the therapy that you're, you know, going through is, you know, a lengthy process. So I think, you know, especially their age, yeah. not having any type of relief in, in, in a short amount of time. I mean, you said your, one of your episodes was a year long. Um, you know, he was, he was beyond that, but I think not having any um, hope yeah. that something's going to help. And we did ketamine treatment. That's, yeah. that's not. Um, so let's take a, a, a little bit of a step back with that, because I, I think when we spoke to the bottoms, very powerful people as well with their story, I think they equated to, you know, a person's suicidal ideation or suffering from depression is at the top of a burning building. And that fire just gets more and more intense and they're burning on a daily basis. And in their minds, they see only one way out of that. You know, for Matthias, he started on medication, he started with Prozac, which was the first prescription they gave him. They combined that with something else, Rexulti. They switched over to Zoloft. They did Wellbutrin. They did one which was L. And as Rachel was saying, that's those are four or six weeks of saying, here, try to see how it goes. Oh, that didn't work? Let's try this other combination. See how this goes. And day in and day out, they're getting burned. Day in and day out, they're waking up sleeping. And they're waking up crying, going to sleep crying. Asking somebody to go through that level of pain on a daily basis is just incredible. And it's so long. So Matthias tried all these treatments. As Rachel mentioned, after all of that failed, we went with ketamine, which was not FDA approved and is not, to the best of my knowledge, um, FDA approved. They have a variation in terms of nasal, which is which is on uh, patent and all. So there's a lot of reasons for that, of course. He tried ketamine, which has had some success. And that didn't work with him as well. I mean, it, it raised it. We're going to do transcranial magnetic or TMS, magnetic stimulation. He was supposed to start that on a Monday. He died that Saturday. And after that was the more recent version of electro. Uh, I know there's a stigma, electroshock therapy to it. And we're going to try that as well. All of those treatments over the course of roughly nine months or so, it just didn't kick it. And to your first question, is it that the depression adapts? Is it we don't understand? I just don't think we understand enough. Is it serotonin? Is it the receptors? Is it the combination of both? And, There's just a lot. Every time something failed, yes, he was convinced nothing would work. It's his own fault. And it's his brain. And it's only his brain. Yep. Everyone else's can be fixed, but his could not. And it and it was more of a failure every time. Yeah. And I think that also actually a good point. Went into the whole circle. Yeah. You know? To them, when they, they they already feel like failures. And these treatments which are working on 50% of the people don't work with them. Ketamine, 75% success rate, doesn't work with him. Um, it is it's him in his mind. He left yeah. us some videos. And when he was struggles and he was always saying, you know, he would point to his head. It's my effed up head. It's my effed up brain. You know, it's not you. You guys have done great. It's my effed up brain. Don't blame yourself. It's my brain. Yeah. So depression that's resistant to treatment is, uh, wow, painful. I mean, I, I yeah. can't imagine the strength that kid had just to hang on as long as he did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to your metaphor of the burning building, it sounds like every time one of those treatments would fail, that's more fuel to that fire. Yeah, that's exactly. More, and that fire is getting bigger yeah. because now this didn't work, this didn't yeah. work, this didn't work. And I think you hit the nail on the head 
with the experience with medication. I'd like to share my experience and take that a step further, which is, you know, you're being expected to wait these four, six, eight weeks to see if something's going to work. But in that time frame, it's actually a lot of the time making it worse. Yes. The, the most uh, suicidal intensity I've ever felt in my life was in the first two weeks of being on Zoloft. Um, yep. The closest I've ever come to taking action on my suicidal feelings was being on this thing that was supposed to help me. Uh, when we were cleaning out my dad's room after losing him to suicide, we found a Zoloft prescription in his nightstand. We didn't even know he was taking it and it was found in his system. So uh, we know he was on that at the time of his death. So, you know, of course, there's a massive resentment there uh, against the pharmaceuticals that are supposed to be helping us. In some cases, it makes it a lot harder for a period of time. And like you said, Raphael, that we're expected to sit with that pain for four, six, eight weeks. And if it doesn't work, sit for it for another four, six, eight weeks. That's just not, that's not good enough. Um, time is absolutely of the essence when it comes to things like depression, especially yeah. treatment resistant depression. And there's so much we don't understand about the way that this works. And my hope is that this continues to improve. That window of time continues to decrease because any any minute we can buy someone who's going through this is a minute a minute well spent. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, I appreciate you you going there with me about treatment resistant depression. I think there are so many misconceptions about out there about not just depression but mental illness. And you take that a step further. I think there's so much we don't understand about treatment resistant depression. I'm wondering if there's uh, any anything else you'd like to share with us on the topic before uh, we shift gears? No, I, the only thing I would say is, 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 and maybe it goes beyond this, but when we were talking about ketamine, for example, as being a treatment that wasn't FDA approved that we were doing, you know, I think we need to do a little bit more on that too. I think there was the pharmaceutical companies, the insurance companies allowing treatments that do work and getting them approved it's a money issue to be frank it's it's an off patent situation for ketamine and it they didn't approve it and we were fortunate enough to be able to afford those treatments where some people may not be able to do so um and i think that's another message i would like to have the foundation advocate for is is getting these pharma not pharmaceuticals these insurance companies to cover uh, um some of the issues that these people are facing because i think it makes life easier for everyone especially the depressive at that point yeah, especially when it's a matter of life or death. We, I yeah. sure hope that insurance companies would be able to support that. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's just another, another thing. But... Well, I really appreciate you two coming on here today and, and talking about Matthias first and foremost. I think that's the most important thing, that we continue that conversation. We continue sharing stories about our loved ones. We keep their names alive. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely what you're doing with this foundation. Um, there is just one more question that I have, but I want to give you an opportunity to share anything else um, that maybe we didn't touch on or anything you were hoping we would have talked about. And it's okay if there's not anything, just, just want to give you the opportunity. I don't think so. No, I'm good. Thank you. Cool. Well, for those who are listening, I, I like asking this question to round out the conversation. Um, we, we talked a lot today about the way Matthias was in his life. We talked about the impact of his death. We talked about the immediate aftermath that you went through as his parents. 
We talked about the formation of the Matias Rosado Foundation. Um, just to just to leave our listeners with with Matias in mind, I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to leave me with and leave them with that you'd like us to remember about Matias. Matias's nickname was the Gentle Giant, in terms of how gentle and kind he was with others. And one of the things we we focus on in the foundation is be kind. And don't get me wrong, it's not that you're going to be able to save a life by saying hello and being nice to people, but yes, it helps. Be kind, be mindful of others, be mindful of the struggles they have. And as Ted Lasso would say, don't be judgmental, you know, be curious, get to learn more about them and, and talk because that's the way we honor the ones that have gone is by just talking about them and keeping them in my thoughts. So be kind. Yeah. Uh, and I would just say, you know, try to live as much in the present as you can. Um, and I was, I, I think I'm happy that we, we did that um, with the boys growing up. Um, and, you know, we, we loved him with all we had. We still do. Yeah, we will. We'll always have two kids. Matias and Mason are our boys, and they always will be. Eminem. Eminem boys. <laughs> Eminems. I love that. Thank you. That was very, very well said, and I think a great note to wrap up on. Um, there's someone who I admire a lot. Her name is Betsy Rhodes. We had her on, I believe it was episode three of the podcast. She's heavily involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And there's something she always says that when we have conversations like this, when we talk about our loved ones that we've lost to suicide, we're helping them live longer and louder. And I definitely feel that way leaving this conversation today. Um, I feel the presence of Matias and the impact that his life and also his death have had. And I just really want to express my gratitude for, for you coming here today to share it with me. Thank you so much, Rob, for the opportunity. And yeah, please continue the work you're doing. Yeah. It was a painful conversation, and I actually feel better talking yeah, about yeah, it now. It's funny. It's, it's weird funny. how that works, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. So thank you for the opportunity. All right, Rachel Raphael, thank you. And I'm I'm looking forward to catching up with the both of you soon. We'll do. Thanks. Right, thank you.